0: Hey, how's it going? Happy Monday. (laughs) I hope you're having a wonderful day so far. My name is Bailey Sarian and today is Monday, which means it's Murder, Mystery and Makeup Monday. If you are new here, hi. How are you? My name is Bailey Sarian and on Mondays I sit down and I talk about a true crime story that's been heavy on my knock in, and I do my makeup at the same time. If you're interested in true crime and you like makeup, I would highly suggest you hit that subscribe button. Warning, the following presentation is intended for mature audiences. It contains graphic descriptions of crime scenes, adult dialogue, and strong language. Viewer discretion is advised. Today's story is, I know I say this all the time because, I mean, it. sometimes it's just so hard to believe, right? And today is definitely one of those stories. It's, what, you know? So this story takes place in Overland Park, Kansas, okay? So it's like Southwest of downtown Kansas City, Missouri. Why they have a Kansas City in Missouri? I don't know, they're just trying to confuse us. I think they have a, they have a Kansas City in Kansas too. Doesn't matter because it takes place in Kansas, but it's not far from Kansas City in Missouri. Tell me why I got so hung up on this for just far too long. In the 1980s, Overland Park was flourishing. There was a big boom in commercial and residential development. And the city was just really growing. I mean, it had almost um, 100,000 people living in the area. So, I mean, it was pretty good. It was a suburb to the city and a lot of residents that were living there were middle-class families. Overall, the city had a positive reputation and was known for like an affordable and family-friendly community. It has consistently been voted one of the top 10 places to live in the United States, fun fact. And it offers a great option for the retirement community, also just great for families. So, okay, great, right? With a bigger population though, comes more and more suspicious people. So in late 1984, a 19 year old woman named Paula Godfrey was living in the Overland Park area. Now she was looking for a job, a new job, and she found an advertisement in the paper for a secretary position. Now this position, it would involve travel and training, but it overall just offered really great pay. So Paula told her parents that she was going to this interview and off she went. Unfortunately though, this would be the last time that they saw Paula. As time passed, the family grew, worried okay they hadn't heard from her and it was just very unlike her to not check in as days passed they received typed letters in the mail signed by paula now these letters said that she was in need of time away she wanted to find herself and become more independent the family like didn't believe that this letter was coming from her because it just sounded nothing like their daughter. So then the family goes down to the police to file a missing persons report. Now, again, at this time, Paula was 19. So there was really nothing the police could too, because to them, they see a letter from someone who is of age. Maybe she just didn't wanna be found. And most of all, there's really like no evidence of any type of crime that may have taken place. So they did file the missing person report, but there really wasn't anything more that they could do. Okay, so then. January 11th, 1985. A woman calls 911. She's concerned about her daughter-in-law, Lisa Stacy. Now she hadn't heard from Lisa in a number of days and she was growing more and more worried. Now Lisa was only 19. She just had a baby who was now four months old. Uh, The baby's name was Tiffany. So Lisa was briefly married, but that only lasted for a couple of months. Her ex-husband ended up moving to Chicago and enlisted in the Navy, and then Lisa stayed behind in Kansas City. Kansas, not Missouri. Yeah, I know, it's confusing. When her husband moved, Lisa had nowhere to go, okay? She had no job. She moved there with his family, so like her family wasn't even there. She really had no options. So she ended up going to a local women's group home just to stay there until she figured things out. So not long after, Lisa told her sister-in-law that she was really excited because she got accepted into this Kansas City outreach program, which was a program that focused on young mothers, getting them back on their feet, providing them with housing, daycare, and a secure job. This program was started in Kansas City by a name of uh, John Osborne who wanted to help women or young women get back on their feet. Not many people were accepted into this program. So when Lisa was, she was happy, relieved, Thrilled. So on January 9th, 1985, John Osborne, the guy who owned the outreach program, he picked Lisa and her baby Tiffany up from her in-laws house before taking her into the program. John would end up taking Lisa and her baby over to a hotel near his, his offices and allow them to stay there until they got into the proper housing. So that very same night, Lisa called her mother-in-law just in a, in panic. She was crying, she seemed very upset because she was told that her mother-in-law was trying to take her baby away from her. And then she was also told that her mother-in-law was bad-mouthing her, just calling her a bad mother. So her mother-in-law is just all sorts of confused because Like this wasn't the case. She never said that, she wasn't taking the baby and she never said Lisa was a bad mom. So she's just trying to calm her down and figure out what exactly is going on. So Lisa just seems to be very upset on the phone and she tells her mother-in-law that these people, they made her sign blank sheets of paper, like some kind of contract, but she wasn't even sure what she was signing because the pages were blank. And her mother-in-law isn't understanding because I mean, that doesn't make any sense, right? You'd be like, what do you, what? Her mother-in-law is telling her like, don't sign anything, don't agree to anything, whatever. But then Lisa quickly tells her mother-in-law on the phone, they're coming now and then hangs up quickly. Now this would be the last time anyone had heard from Lisa. Story. So back to the 911 call. So her mother-in-law calls 911 and tells them exactly what happened. Now, the next day, the in-laws, they call up the hotel that Lisa was, was supposed to stay at, and they ask the hotel, like, hey, is, is Lisa still there? She still checked in. And that's when they were informed that she had already checked out. The bill had been paid by a local business under the name John Robinson. Now, none of this was making any damn sense, but they really didn't know, like, where else to go from here. Now a couple of days go by and the family randomly gets a voicemail cause they're out like doing their thing. So they come home and there's um, a message on the answering machine. So they listen to it. And it's from some guy named Father Martin who worked at the local mission. Well, on this message, he says that Lisa and her baby are fine, but they ended up leaving town with a guy named Bill. Super random, but... Like, okay. The family then decides to call the local mission and ask if there was a Father Martin working there. And then that's when they were informed that there was no Father Martin. No Father Martin had worked there. So like, what is going on? Police go down to question this John Robinson guy. You know, the man who was in charge of the program. And he's like, yeah, I did pick Lisa up. She came down to my office and I was wanting to help her out. But she also brought this guy named Bill with her and lisa said that this is my my boyfriend so john offered her help and then she kindly declined saying that she was no longer going to need the help she was going to move with bill and start a new life she wanted to pass this opportunity on to somebody somebody else who needed it so the police passed this information on to the family but Again, it's really not making much sense to them. Like who the hell is this Bill guy? And they don't really have any answers. And because Lisa is of age, like over 18, there's really not much more they can do. I mean, from their investigation, I guess. It's like Lisa just maybe wanted to start a new life with this Bill guy. So a few days pass and the family gets a letter in the mail and it's signed by Lisa. In this letter, it says that things have been going bad for her and she had an opportunity to start a new life with this man she met and that she just wanted to, to do her thing. So not only did her family receive it, but the women's shelter that she was staying at prior to leaving, they also received a signed letter from Lisa saying the same thing. Now, they turn this letter into police, but again, there's really not much they could do. So the case just goes cold. So then June 1987, a 27 year old woman named Catherine Clampett, she moved to Kansas City from Texas to have a new start in life. So Catherine moves, right? Okay, so she starts looking for a new job and she comes across an ad in the newspaper for an executive secretary position for a busy CEO who just needed help. Catherine ends up getting hired for the position and she ends up working for a man named John Dawson. Catherine kept in touch with her family back in Texas and she was telling them about her new job for the CEO. She would call every so often and just keep everyone in the loop as to what was going on. But then all of a sudden it's just like communication stopped and nobody had heard from her. So Catherine's brother keeps calling and calling, but he's not getting he's not getting any response. So then the days just keep passing, passing by, right? And nothing, nothing from Catherine. So then the family receives a typed letter in the mail and it's from Catherine. In the letter, it says that she's doing well, that she just decided to take a different job and focus on being more independent. Now to her family, this made, again, no sense. This is just really worrying to them. They call police, but there's really not much they can do because she's a grown adult and there's no signs of there being a crime. Just a typed letter that may or may not be from her, you know? But Catherine's brother like knew something was up. So he looks up the CEO that Catherine had mentioned and he finds a phone number, calls the number. And then when the receptionist picks up, he asks to speak with a John Dawson. And that's when he's informed that nobody works there with that name. And they also never heard of Catherine. So now the family's like, okay, what the heck is really going on? Like this is not making sense. Because there's really nothing police can do, Catherine's family decides to take matters into their own hands and they go down to Catherine's apartment. Her brother goes to the apartment. He starts going through all of her belongings and he's just looking for anything that can help figure out where she is. He comes across a bunch of receipts and then finds one that was from a recent stay at a hotel. The room was paid for by a person named John Robinson, a name that they had never heard of before. While looking through her belongings, they also find that Catherine was working for a company named Equi2, Equa 2 Yeah, I think it's Equa 2 which was a consulting firm and was owned by John Robinson. Now this is a real place and a real company. So like maybe they just had the wrong information, you know? So the brother is able to find the information on this company and gets the address. And the next day he goes out to the address for Equatu, Equitu, Equitu, whatever. He goes there, he walks up to the building and he sees that the place is shut down. There's like nobody in there. And the reason that it shut down was because this guy, John Robinson, the CEO of this said company, he was about to start a prison sentence. John Robinson guy, well, he had been arrested a few weeks earlier for fraud and theft. And in police's eyes, he was just really seen as like a small time con man. Now this was in the late 80s. So the police kept their records by hand and there was like no connection being made between all the, the disappearances to these three women, Catherine, Stacy, and Lisa. So in the investigator's eyes, these three women were seen as troubled and they just ran off to start a new life. Police just believed that these women didn't wanna be found and they really had no way of connecting the dots. I think technically they're supposed to communicate with each other, but you know, it wasn't happening. These cases end up going cold and 10 years pass. Oh yeah. So March 25th, 2000, 27 year old Suzette Troughton. She was living with her mother in Michigan and she was just ready to move out and be on her own. She ended up finding a job in Kansas, working for a wealthy businessman that did a lot of international travel. Her new position was to take care of this wealthy businessman's father, who was um, older and just needed assistance while he was away being a wealthy businessman. Now Suzette and her mother Carolyn were super close, they talked all the time. So her mom was sad that her daughter was leaving, but she was just excited, you know, she's starting a new chapter, she's doing her thing, you have to support it, right? Okay. So Suzette moved out to Kansas City and would call her mom often, even emailing her and just let her know like how everything was going. But one month after Suzette moved, the phone calls, the emails, everything just stopped and Suzette just seemed to like vanish. So this was very strange because again, Suzette and her mother were very close. They would talk on the phone almost like every single day. So to not hear from her for a couple of days was very unlike her. So Suzette's mother, she ends up finding like the contact information for this businessman, boop, pop, boop. She calls him up. She's like, hey, so my daughter moved out there. She's supposed to be working for for you. I haven't heard from her. Do you know anything? And he tells her that Suzette took off with a man named Jim Turner and they were going to sail around the world together on a sailboat. Now this didn't make any damn sense. Because if her daughter was going to sail around the world, okay, Suzette would have told her. She's like, no, no. Now the man on the phone said that Suzette had only worked for him for like a short period of time and that he really didn't have any answers for her. Suzette's mother, she, you know, contacts police and tells them that her daughter's missing, the name of the employer, and that her daughter was working for this man named John Robinson. So then Suzette's mother starts to receive letters in the mail from Suzette, one came from California and another one came from Mexico. Now these letters, it said that she was sailing around the world with a new love she had found and not to worry about her. Now these letters, they were typed, but her mother knew sure as heck that these were not from Suzette. Now she knew this because there were no spelling errors in this letter, which was not like her. Sometimes it comes in handy to not be able to to spell that great. So her mom's like, yeah, this isn't her. There's no way this is her. Now, but the weirdest thing of all was that the letter was signed by Suzette at the bottom. Okay, it was her daughter's signature. And it was, you know, when you look at it or whatever, it's it's like, there's an indentation. She signed it. It wasn't printed. It wasn't like a stamp. It was a signature. So it was just strange. And she's thinking, well, crap, like, am I, worrying too much, like I don't understand. So now at this point, when Suzette goes and tells the uh, police about John Robinson, now the name is starting to sound very familiar because there were people in that office who were also aware of the missing girls from the 80s. Also technology had advanced and at this point they were able to keep better records on the missing people in the system and not just like pen to paper, so that's good. So this whole John Robinson is raising some red flags and the FBI ends up getting involved. So they decide to look into John Robinson's background and they see that he ran a couple of businesses. He was currently running an independent magazine around farming life. He was married, he had four kids and he was well-respected in the neighborhood. He came from a middle-class family, was raised by a religious family, was a boy scout involved with the local church, and he was also involved with local charities. Now John literally seemed like a total normal family dude. Well, besides his arrest records, okay. So he had a pretty lengthy arrest record. In 1971, he was arrested for stealing money from the company he was working for, and then again for a probation violation. And then in 1976, he was arrested for fraud. In 1981, felony for embezzlement, and then in 198. He was arrested for theft. To the um, investigators, it wasn't making much sense to them because he was a con man. He was stealing money, which is bad. But what does a con man have to do with these missing women? They couldn't just go up to him and arrest him because there was no proof of any crime in the first place. So John is officially on their radar. You know, they don't wanna go up to John and just start asking him some wild questions and potentially tipping him off. So they decide, okay, let's start looking into Suzette's background and see if that can lead us somewhere. Cause maybe they're missing something with Suzette, which they were. So investigators go and they confiscate Suzette's computer and they talk, they like search her online activity. That's when they find that Suzette was really into BDSM. BDSM is a variety of erotic practices or role-playing involving bondage, discipline, dominance and submission, sadomasochism, and you know, whoops. Now, BDSM may not be your cup of tea, but there's a large community who does participate in this, but most of all, it's always with consenting partners. So police learned that Suzette really lived a completely different life online. She was very active in the BDSM websites and she was always in the BDSM-focused chat rooms. She was looking for partners to engage with and according to Suzette's friends, she was sexually submissive and was always in search of a master, someone she could be a consenting slave to. So, investigators learned that Suzette had found a new master online, and over time they were building a relationship. And the full truth was that Suzette moved to Kansas City to be this person's slave and also work as a caretaker for his elderly father. The master's name? John Robinson. Safe, like Simply Safe. Now BDSM isn't illegal, right? So investigators are like, okay, we can't arrest John Robinson for whips and chains, you know? But they did think, okay, let's, on the down low, let's follow John Robinson undercover. Let's follow his day-to-day and like see what's going on. So they followed John, his day-to-day, his home life, all that stuff. And after weeks of following him, they realized that John was just living this completely like double life. At home, he was a family man. He had four kids, he had the wife, a dog, you know? Just living this all American middle-class lifestyle, whatever the heck that means, you know? But John would tell his wife that he was going to work. But then when investigators followed him, they saw that he was actually like going and hanging around seedy motels, hanging around sex workers and different strip clubs, which again, isn't illegal, but it was like, okay. So investigators, say would follow him in his car, right? And then they would park outside the motel and then they would see John coming and going with different women into the motel. And then around five o'clock PM, it's kind of like John was like clocking out, I guess. And he would head home, meet his wife and, and the family. Well, the FBI was involved. They were able to wiretap all of his phones and stuff, but also they were able to track like what he was doing online. So they're tracking his movements online. And they see that John also is a frequent visitor of the BDSM websites and he was in constant search for slaves. Now on a popular BDSM website, he had the username master, not like master1022499922, no, just master. Blew my mind. Okay, so he would visit these websites, right? He would offer women lots of money, new wardrobes, and a job in return of being their master. So at one point police get a room at the motel that John would meet a lot of his guests at. So they get a room and it's next to John's room and they're listening in. They're hoping to figure out what exactly, what is he doing, right? What is he doing? Cause at this point they weren't even sure what he was doing. They were thinking that maybe he was involved with like sex trafficking or something. But again, they just <laughs> didn't have anything. So they're listening in. And that's when they start to hear slaps. Okay, and then it's like, okay, there seems to be like sexual acts happening, super awkward. They couldn't determine if these were consenting acts or not, so they couldn't just crash into the room and arrest him. Well, time is going on, investigators, they just feel like they don't really have anything on him, but then they get a big break, a big break, thank you. So a woman comes forward to police, now she tells them, that she met this man named James Turner online. He offered her a job and asked her to meet at this hotel. So she goes down there to the hotel and the two of them get into some kind of argument and I guess he ends up slapping her pretty pretty dang hard. So the woman, she leaves and she goes down to the front desk and she's like, hey, who is staying in this room? I need to. I need his name because I'm gonna report what happened to me. And that's when she was told that the room was under the name John Robinson. Now this woman, she didn't know John Robinson, okay? And she's like, this is just all sorts of weird. This person crossed a line and that's when she decided to go to police. So she files a complaint with police for sexual battery. Police are keeping record, John had about 15 to like 20 identities that he had been using. So a couple days go by and then guess what? Another woman comes forward with the same exact complaint, but on top of that, she was also robbed. So she filed a complaint for sexual battery plus robbery against John. Police finally have enough like to make, an arrest. So on June 2nd, 2000, police go out to John's house, knock, 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 hey, we're here to arrest you. John actually invites them in, they say like he's super friendly and pretty calm. So they tell John that he's under arrest for sexual battery and robbery. But then they say, when he's in like the handcuffs and stuff, they tell John like, yeah, you're arrested for sexual battery and robbery. But we also know about four missing women that seem to all be tied to you, John. So we wanna talk to you about that when we get down to the station. They say that at that moment, like all the color just left John's face and he had a full blown anxiety attack. Like get it together, John. You knew this was coming. So they get a bunch of, uh, they get the warrants and whatnot and they confiscate all of his computers and all of his files. Now he had tons of files that dated back many, many years. So it was like a little treasure trove. While going through all of his stuff, they realized that John had two storage units. One was in Kansas and another in Missouri. Plus he had a family farm in Lynn County, Kansas. They go down to this the Kansas storage locker. They open her up. and inside of there, they find tons of birth certificates, driver's license, social security cards. All of these were belonging to some of the women that were missing. So then they head down to Lynn County to search the family farm. It's a pretty big property. They had like a mobile home. They had a storage shed. They're searching everything right next to the storage shed. They found two large 88 gallon barrels. So they're trying to move the barrels and one of them kind of tips over and some liquid starts to leak out of the side and it seemed to be blood. So they open it up. They open it up and inside they find Suzette's body inside the barrel. So then there's a second barrel. Now they open that one up and they find another woman inside of it. They had no idea who this victim was. So now they're thinking like, oh my gosh, oh dear. How many people has he really killed that we don't even know about? So investigators go out to search the other storage unit that was down in Missouri or over in Missouri, wherever Missouri is. Okay, they open that up and what do they find? Three more barrels with three more bodies inside. I got questions. First of all, doesn't it smell or no? Okay, that's my first question. My second question is, how many people are doing this with storage units? And you don't even know. That's, that's all the questions I have. So they find three more victims. Now, none of these victims were the women that investigators had on their list. So they're just like, oh dear. Oh dear. On June 12th, they were able to ID the victim in the barrel on the farm. She was a 21 year old girl named Isabella who was a Polish immigrant and she had like just moved to Indiana. She then moved to Kansas City to marry John in 1999. In the storage documents, they found a slave contract between Isabella and John, which gave John like almost all control over her life. And then one day she just, vanished. Isabella's family, they never reported her missing because they thought that she was traveling around Europe. They had been receiving signed letters and emails from her, they just thought she was doing her thing. Yeah, so they never put in a a missing persons report, which is super sad, but At the same time, I get it. Like some parents are super on top of their kids and then some are just kind of like, meh, whatever. So, you you know, they didn't know. Anyways, but both victims that were found in in these barrels, Isabella and Suzette, both of them had died from blunt force trauma to the head. It was believed that they had come from like a small hammer. And then I guess John put them in the barrel and then just let them be in a barrel. Like, what a loser. Now the three victims that were found inside of the storage unit in Missouri, these were like not the three women investigators were looking for or expected, Lisa, Paula, and Catherine. But they did get the autopsy done in June and they were able to ID them. So one of them was 49 year old Beverly Bonner. Another one was 45 year old Sheila and her 15 year old disabled daughter, Debbie Faith. They see that none of these people had missing persons reports. None of them. The victim, Beverly, she had worked as a prison librarian. She met John when John was incarcerated at the prison she was working at in the 90s. So they met there. And then the two of them started having an affair because both of them were married, by the way. John left prison and then Betty or Beverly ended up following him and like continuing their relationship. Now, Beverly ended up getting a divorce from her husband, who was like a doctor. John had discovered that Beverly was getting around $1,000 a month in alimony checks from her ex-husband, and he wanted in on that, I guess, because he ends up killing Beverly, and he started cashing her checks every month. Beverly's family knew something wasn't right, but again, she was writing them letters, okay? And the letters were signed. They were telling them that like she was fine. She had started a new life. And then on top of that, her alimony checks were being cashed every month, which just made them think she was still alive and just didn't want to be bothered. Okay, so then who the heck was Sheila and her daughter Debbie? Now, these were the two other victims that were found in the storage unit. John met Sheila on the BDSM website or ABDSM website. Well, Sheila, she was looking for a master, but expressed to John that her daughter was disabled and she wasn't able to just like pick up and move to where John lived. So John tells her like, hey you can move out here, I'm super successful, I'm a successful businessman, and I have lots of money. So I could take care of you and your daughter, give her the best care. Sheila and her daughter Debbie, they move out to live with John. Now after moving in with John, Sheila and Debbie just vanished, they just disappeared. John killed both of them, and he continued to cash the disability checks, Sheila was receiving for her daughter, and he continued, Continued to cash that for over six years, nobody caught on. Nobody kept in touch with them, so like no one really knew. Ugh. So it was uncovered that John was making these women sign blank sheets of paper, telling them that they were going to be traveling a lot and that they wouldn't have time to to write letters to their families. So they signed letters or blank sheets of paper ahead of time. That's how John was able to get all these signatures. Like they really were the victim's signatures. Um, now it really doesn't make much sense to us. I'm sure you're like, what? why would you do that? But you know, sometimes when you're in this thing called love or you think you're in love, you could do just really dumb things that don't make much sense. I'm sure like it didn't click for these women, at the time, and I'm sure they weren't thinking they were gonna be murdered and all that jazz. So, but that's how he was getting all these signatures, okay? And then John would just type out the letters afterwards. Now get this, because this blew my mind. Police get another disturbing tip. I need you to listen, cause you're not listening. Okay, Is the, this is already a bad story, right? Bad, awful. Well then, they find out that John helped his brother adopt a baby back in 1985. Do you know where this is going? The brother paid John $5,000. John presented the legal documents signed by a judge, attorneys, showing that this was a legit, a legit adoption. It turned out that the girl who was now a teenager was actually Lisa's baby, aka Tiffany, AKA one of John's victims. The one I mentioned in the beginning of the story. Yes. yes. What? Yes. That's how I felt. I was like, no, yes. That's so messed up on so many levels. Okay, look, a photograph was given to John's brother on the day that the baby was adopted. And it was the same photo that Lisa's family had of Lisa's baby as well. Again, when she went missing, she was only four months old, but they were able to get uh, the baby's, Tiffany, the baby's footprint from her birth records. And then they matched it to her grown footprint as an adult or a teenager. bop boop it was her. Now, 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 John's brother had no idea that this had happened. He had all the legal documents showing that this was a legit adoption. But in reality, John had forged all of these documents and, Yeah. Could you imagine? So like obviously this is shocking information to the family. This is, they had no idea. They had no idea. The daughter gets put in such a, I just couldn't imagine. I just couldn't imagine. Could you imagine? I know I keep saying that, but I just couldn't imagine. What would you do? So the daughter, she's only, she was a teenager at this time. She could stay with the Robinson family or she could head back and be with Lisa's family. But she decided to stay with the Robinson family because it was like all she knew, they raised her. That was her family, don't judge. She would later on in life, sue the hospital who recommended John's outreach program to her mom. Yeah, John's outreach program was like in partnership with this hospital and they were recommending people to him. Yeah, so I mean, who really knows how many people John had? So in October, 2002, John Robinson, he was at that point 58 and he was now on trial for the murder of Lisa, Isabella, and Suzette. Now he was pleading not guilty (laughs) dumbass. In January of 2003, the jury sentences John to life imprisonment for the murder of Lisa and two death penalties for the murder of Suzanne and Isabella. He had to go to Missouri and still stand trial there. So he ends up making a deal with the courts to avoid the death sentence. He ends up pleading guilty to the murder of Beverly, Sheila, and Debbie. Now sadly, to this day, they never found the bodies of Lisa, Catherine, and Paula. They have no idea where they went and like, geez, there's probably more. Now John would end up spending the rest of his life in prison, he's currently sitting on death row in Kansas. Now you're probably wondering what happened to his wife and stuff. Well, his wife, poor thing. She's like, you know, I'm saying poor thing because I don't believe that she had any idea what was going on but she also like tried to stay by her man and just support him because that was like the right thing to do you know they were married for over 40 years and in 2005 that's when she files for divorce john sucks he is disgusting he murdered innocent women took advantage of of women, but then he like ruined all the lives around him. He's just like a, one selfish asswipe. This is a side note. I think this is the first time in murder mystery makeup history where I didn't finish my makeup before my story. Well, is it? I mean, there's been other times where I just stopped doing my makeup, but I, I'm truly just not done. This is groundbreaking information. Okay, hold on, I'll, I'll be right back. And that my friends is the awful story about John Robinson. He was something else. I mean, it. I, The things that frustrate me the most about stories like this one is like, why can't you just tell us where all of your victims are? You don't even have to tell me, just tell police. I mean, at least all the families can get closure. Like you're gonna die anyways, you're on death row. You're not going anywhere. Like, why can't you just tell them? It's so messed up. I didn't look into like where John's family is now, his ex-wife and his four kids and stuff, because I feel like, don't, just leave them out of this. They've been through enough, you know? What did we learn here? Um, I, I guess something we can take away is that, you know, you should still always at least try your best to run like a background check on people that you're meeting online. Yeah, I know, some of you are just trying to get that D. You're just trying to like meet someone really quick, whatever. But try your best, to just take a moment and do some internet stalking. Try and find their information, make sure they're a legit person, who they say they are, and try your best to find somebody you can tell when you're meeting somebody else. Hey loser, I'm going to meet this guy, blah, blah, blah. You know, silly so at least somebody knows. And I'm not trying to victim blame saying these people didn't do this because it wasn't like a thing yet, right? It was the internet was just starting. But now we have like all the information and resources at our fingertips and I just want you to be safe. So make sure to background check people. Anyways, I would love to hear your guys' thoughts down below. Be safe out there, kitty cats. I love and appreciate you guys so much for hanging out with me today. Today, and I hope you have a good rest of your day. You make good choices. Big thank you to BetterHelp for partnering with me on today's video. But other than that, I will see you guys later. Make good choices. Bye.